I don't, are you familiar with the video game series Metroid? The crux of every game is you start it with all of the power-ups. And then after like the first level, you lose all of them and you have to get them all before the game ends again. And then you, you know, win the final battle with them. So it's like you get to experience yourself with all of this like power and fun ability, and then you lose it all. And that's kind of what genre hopping in design feels like. It's like, okay, got a couple of degrees in industrial design. I'll work here. And then you're like, okay, well, there's a job in this other field. You jump over it and then you just, for some reason, lose all of your powers. Like, like, I forget the whole design process. I forget all of my research abilities. I'm like, none of that applies here, but it all does. I think Jake was going to go I just feel like it's it's more accurate in that I have no salesperson's bone in my body. And I feel like being a jeweler is actually selling things to people. And uh, that that ain't it. That's not it for me. <laughs> That's interesting. Let's, let's get into that. All right. Um, Okay, welcome to another episode of Not Enough Design. We have my good friend and an amazing industrial designer. Um, somebody I look up to in terms of like sketching, the best sketcher in our year, definitely by far. Goldsmith, Jake Dankstorp. Thank you for, Thanks so much for doing this, me. bud. I appreciate it. Let's get into that. You said you're... You prefer goldsmith rather than jewelry design. Get into that a little bit. What do you mean uh, uh, in terms of selling? I don't know. I just feel like uh, maybe it'll come with age, but at the at the moment, I feel much more interested in just like developing projects and kind of the problem solving aspect of design and kind of that that creative uh, portion of actually like developing ideas, much more than kind of like uh, at least for me, which I find quite soul crushing the like constant uh trying to like beat out everyone in this kind of like rat race of the internet it's like yeah. i'll work as a goldsmith behind someone who has a client base and i'll i'll just solve the desired problems well someone more suited to that kind of entrepreneurial landscape does that um because yeah i mean it's just uh I don't know. I feel like uh, during the fall, like late fall, I was having to do a bunch of like online applications and just uh, like it can just get soul crushing, like having to submit yourself over and yeah. over and over again. Um, and so, you know, compounding that with like trying to do a kind of uh, full on shop independently and to say like jewelry designer with a shop, that would be, I feel like difficult. Yeah, there's a whole kind of like thing that comes on with the designer tag um, and just there's kind of like a freedom in just being like a craftsman and a goldsmith yeah. in that sense. Just like, a, you know, uh, an apprenticeship is much. Absolutely. It's like, a, like, yeah, going into like Zen mode almost. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think, you know, it's spoiler alert for conversations, but in terms of like genre hopping between different design fields, um, when you're going into something new and that you just kind of have a bit of passion in, uh, it's very, you know, it feels a bit presumptuous to then be like, I know everything I'm going to put myself out there and, and sell these things that I have just started doing. And so, you know, for me, I think a bit of it is like trying to be thorough and trying to be respectful of everyone that's been in the craft for so long. And before I have the kind of like full gumption to, to actually say jewelry designer and, and, and have a shop and everything. Um, so just trying to like pay those craft dues. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, um, was it, did you like fall in love with jewelry making at RISD? So we literally saw you fall in love or were you all like, were you doing it before you, long before you came here? Hmm. I'm trying to think of an analogy that worked. I definitely liked jewelry before, uh, before RISD and I had, made some like little prototype designs in my undergrad when we were doing like form studies and stuff. It, I just found it to be, you know, I think it's very sculptural, it's worn on the body. So there's a lot of opportunity to kind of play with, um, to play with kind of ergonomics of things. Yeah, um, just quickly for the listeners, you both your undergrad and um, grad were in industrial design. Industrial. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, and so I, I definitely like started doing drawing and stuff around jewelry design and some, you know, little prototypes, but I didn't, I didn't do any full jewelry making until RISD. And so that was definitely, um, like confirmation. Like mm -hmm. it was like, okay, I like the kind of the visual language and the realm of this, uh, of this field, but you know, it might just be super romanticized. I don't know. I've never crafted anything in it, but you know, RISD gave me the opportunity to kind of really, uh, kind of cement that love because they let you go way, way, way back with hand tools and, and, and you know, kind of peasant it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I love you know, it. It, I love it, yeah. it was like, do you enjoy this thing with the worst tools possible? <laughs> Then you're going to like it when you have actual the smallest stuff. tools, the smallest yeah. tools. It's so crazy. Um, I was it like a love for jewelry as an art form and as objects, or was it love for the material that is like different metals? Uh, metal work. Definitely a bit of both. I've definitely found that metal is like, Mwah, that's my, like chef's kiss material. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've done woodworking and I've done, you know, model making. I've never worked with glass. Um, and I've done a little bit of, you know, fabric work, but um, metal's just the bomb. It's like, it's, it's, it's rigid enough, but it's still malleable. You can fuck up, but then you can, you can reforge it and you can really, yeah. uh, you know, you can play around with it in a way that's like quite forgiving. Uh, but from the outside, you would never really know that you'd assume it's like, you know, incredibly difficult. So, uh, definitely a love for the material. Um, and then I think, uh, like I've always really, really liked detail oriented work. And so, um, it just kind of fell in naturally a bit. It was like, we were like that Zen space of craft, like, you know, that doesn't happen with every craft. Like, you know, if I go into the wood shop, 
I'm going to be worried that I'm going to fuck up and my measurements are going to be off and my joinery is going to fail. And, you know, the shop techs are going to laugh at me. Um, but with, with jewelry, it really, I got into that Zen space and I was like, okay, okay, this is, you know, this is something different. It's a, mm-hmm. it's something right. Yeah. I feel kind of similarly, but not towards metals. I love metal more than wood. Definitely. Wood is like just a hard craft to master. It's like you really have to be like into wood. Yeah. You know, there's like no space to fuck up. Well, it's just like, is the room humid? Oh, you shit my Will this joint fit tomorrow? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel the same way. Um, I think glass provided the same thing to me that metal provided yeah. you. Um, there's room for like, fucking up but it's everything happens so quick it's almost like you're it's like a choreographed dance it's like you're dancing with a 7000 degree furnace in front of you and a hot pipe and a blob of glass at the end of it and you're like yeah. trying to make an object out of it and if it just falls and breaks or cracks from the heat or the stress or whatever you just put it back in the furnace and it's liquid glass again. And there's yeah. this like cycle of life. That's amazing. I think ceram- ceramics has that too. Metal has it too. Oh my God. I was literally yeah. just talking about this the other day. Cause there's that Netflix show blown away or blown. Oh away. yeah. My yeah, professor's yeah. in it. Uh, Chris. I noticed that there was yeah. Bruce yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have a, um, I have a few ceramicist friends. And I love their kind of ability to be so cavalier and so throwaway with things to that from the outside look so like amazing and like well thought through. And they're like, oh, well, it's cracked. So I'm just going to like hit it with a baseball bat and yeah. start over. And, uh, you know, I think like a lot of them are some of like the most creative people I've met because they're so kind of okay with letting things go. And they're so like, they're so eager and ready to just make something new every time that they're not like, oh, well, this idea that I've spent three weeks working on in the shop has to be the one that I go with. Um, And that's no, you know, diss or anything. That's a material limitation. But I think it does let people be super creative. um, No, absolutely. Um, I think there's like, when I first started uh, glass blowing, which is like the intro class, and it was so jarring to hear glass cracking constantly and shattering in the background like even when nobody's working on it because glass cools unevenly so the um, outside cools faster than the inside and so any like uh stray glass here and there keeps cracking all the time and like shattering and exploding (laughs) and there's this constant like chaos in the background which you kind of like become deaf to um as time goes by in the hot shop but initially like growing up it was so taboo to like break glass at home it was like a big deal like if you've broken your mom's vase or like a glass or a plate it's like oh my god (laughs) but in the hot shop it's like yeah it's a it's material it you break it you play with it you drop it and the whole kind of like all the fog and mysticism behind glass went away and it was, there was this freedom that you get from like being, from feeling like I am allowed to create and destroy this material. And yeah. so I, I am now able to do everything in between 
when that kind of fear dis- disappears, you know? Yeah. Um, it's a crazy material. I, I fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's it's get into cool. like, yeah, no, go ahead. I had nothing really to add. It definitely still feels kind of magical to me. Like I yeah, still abso- have that. Yeah. Uh, yeah totally um let's get into like um your journey and path a little bit like why you got into industrial design because um i don't really know a lot of people who did id in the background as well maybe like a handful um so i'm always curious uh about how you find found out about id so quickly and like early on yeah um so this is gonna be a small anecdote but i think it's important (laughs) It's fundamental. Uh, At the Regina Public Library in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, when I was like eight years old, there was these Star Wars books that were cross sections of all of the spaceships. So it would be like the spaceship in isometric and then it was cross section. So you could see like all of the sub decks and everything. And that like blew my mind as a kid. (laughs) And um, it incumbent like stuff like that where it was just kind of you know seeing how things worked and what how things were made and kind of like the interior of stuff was always like really my jam um and my mom is uh an interior designer and uh, and an architect okay so uh you know she uh in uh decades past um she uh worked at herman miller um and so she was always very keen on design and on, you know, having amazing home decor and was really, you know, uh, into kind of industrial design before I really even knew what it was. And so, you know, she had, you know, replicas and and real pieces of mid-century modern stuff all through the house. And um, so, uh, you know, a lot of those examples of kind of, you know, famous design history were pretty like, uh, there under the radar and I didn't really know much about it. Um, and then in high school, I, uh, had like a pretty solid aptitude for math, which is now completely gone, but it dips after uh, 21. Oh, oh, brutal. I think yeah. it like, it, it definitely feels like the kind of varsity jacket bus stop guy. Who's like, yeah, I miss those days. <laughs> like I miss having that yeah. like, math brain. My math um, professor told told me like every mathematical genius who's written a thesis or like um, solved some equation has done it before twenty one yeah. or twenty five at the most. Yeah, it's crazy. That's that's comforting. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so I had that kind of aptitude for math. I really liked um, I really liked fine art. So I I, I sketched a lot. I painted, um, and I was getting a bit into like a little bit of graphic design. Um, and, uh, my, uh, uh, my mom was just kind of like, Hey, you have these two kind of aptitudes. You should consider maybe doing industrial design. It involves a bit of math and a bit more planning and, and, uh, you know, kind of drafting ability. Um, but it's also quite creative. And so, um, that was really where the kind of seed planted was just like, I have these two really kind of disparate skills. They seem like they could be paired somehow. And then, you know, having a bit of a role model who, uh, in who, uh, uh, kind of led me that way. Um, and so I applied to a number of schools. Um, I ended up getting a, a pretty big scholarship to go to a place called Carleton, 
in Ottawa. Um, but it was an engineering program for industrial design. Okay. And I was just like a little bit hesitant um, to like fully go into engineering. I felt like I needed a bit more like fine arts training than I needed math training. And so I went to a school in Vancouver called Emily Carr. Um, and uh, really thankful to have done that because met some amazing people, but also uh, was really kind of an early school to work in sustainability theory. Um, Louis St. Pierre, who's been there for a very long time, has been working on sustainable design since like the 90s. Um, and he's just been really doing really cool work. Um, and uh, uh, apparently her and uh, Sarah Garrison now are like in contact and like oh, yeah. talk back and forth. Which That's I think crazy. Is cool. crazy, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it started there. Um, and even then I was still kind of, it was like kind of the Bauhaus style education. So you did the first foundation year where you try a bunch of different fields and then you apply to the program you want to go into. And, um, you know, got to do some industrial design in first year, which again, kind of like the jewelry making classes at RISD was just like, oh, I like this. This is a nice mixture of, of skills. Um, and so that's really where that journey started was um, mixing kind of math and art and finding product design. Um, and so uh, went to Emily Carr, um, had a really good kind of like theoretical um, background. Like it was a lot of critical design theory. It wasn't too much about designing things for market. It was more about being critical and you know, making sure what you put into the world is valuable, um, which, you know, as 19 year olds, everyone's like, no, I want to make cool looking speakers like and chairs, uh, chairs and drones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, how much that sunk in then? Not a lot, but now I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, and so, you know, after Emily Carr um, did some contract work in Vancouver uh, and then you know, I, I felt like I had really, I was like starting to hit an interesting stride with some of the design rhetoric that I was thinking about. But, you know, when you're just independently working, it's very hard to, or at least personally, I find it very hard to, um, you know, do kind of serious academic inquiry. Mm -hmm. It feels like uh, gate kept for some reason, even though mm -hmm. we have access to JSTOR and stuff, it's just like, I don't have an advisory board or anything to kind of mm -hmm. help me along. So um, I thought I was like, well, I feel comfortable with, with, with my technical skills. And I feel like my rhetoric's at an interesting place. Um, I'll try to go to RISD. And uh, so I applied to a few schools and uh, got into RISD and uh, you know, that's where it went from there. Would you say that, now that you've done both, like a bachelor's yeah. and master's in ID, in the scenario if uh, in the scenario where you hypothetically, right, just did a master's in ID and a bachelor's something else, do you think you would have missed out on something that your bachelor provided exclusively? Yeah, totally. I think um, they felt like two very different degrees. And I think that is kind of because, um, you know, it's a bit of a new field and every program director has a much different philosophy about, you know, what department it should fit in, what the goal of the program should be, how entwined with the program is, 
things like capitalism or the economy uh, or how kind of, you know, art world leaning the program is. So, you know, I think for the first, um, for the first couple of years at Emily Carr, it was very technical and fundamental and mm -hmm. it was learning how to sketch properly. It was learning model making materials, CAD, um, formatting things for injection molding, um, doing some early design research stuff. Um, and then it was really just in like the last year where they were like, okay, here's critical design theory. Here is, um, you know, uh, some agency over the, you know, uh, projects that you do. And yeah. so, uh, it was kind of like a gradient of, um, like practicality, so to speak. It was just like first couple of years were super fundamental and probably stuff that would get you a job. And then fourth year was just like, all right, you know, you're off the leash, start mm -hmm. making critical things that you think are important for the world to know. And uh, so then, you know, RISD was very much kind of an extension of that. Like they gave us a lot of creative freedom, but they made us kind of think about the rhetoric behind everything. Um, and, you know, I, I would be interested to hear what you have to say about this, but like the, the core uh, ID education of the master's program, you know, wasn't a lot of hard skills. It was a lot of communication. It was a lot of reading. It was a lot of, you know, stuff to me that felt like, uh, you know, I had a lot of respect for everyone coming into the program that didn't have an ID background because I was like, wait, you're not getting taught how to sketch. You're not getting taught how to do design research really too much. Like you're just going into this kind of blind, you know, so for me, it felt very, uh, very important and very extended, but um you know, it, I, it definitely was a bit of a testament to kind of sink or swim because all everyone that, you know, didn't come from an ID background still did amazing in the program and, and, and was able to, you know, find themselves. But uh, yeah. so for me, it felt necessary. I think there's like, um, you know, obviously a pros and cons to everything. Like, I think there's a real strong... Um, advantage that you garner with a uh, background in ID coming into like a master's program, definitely. Um, especially your like sketching skills and everything, the way you kind of can transpire an idea onto paper before the big thinking and the designing and the critical uh, thinking, all of that takes place, I think is important. But also I think the pro to having a different background, obviously the con is not having the technical skills, uh, but the but the pro is there's like a whole kind of different knowledge that you bring to the field. And that adds this kind of weird diversity and like ideas that you never thought of before. Like, yeah, well, yeah, I didn't think of that, you know, kind of like, well, most of my kind of, design is always informed by economics and sociology and social psychology and all of those things. And uh, yeah, even though at moments there were, there were definitely moments of like, here's my um, stick man sketch of how hospital workers go about their daily activities. <laughs> but, um, but we were always told like, as long as your stickman figures can convey the idea yeah effectively you've done the job you know but uh yeah but i i would still like to you know sketch uh pretty pretty objects <laughs> but 
but I think it, it's that you, you raise a really good point, which is like that it is like, you know, like any kind of form of academia, I feel like if you get stuck in the whirlpool too long, you're just doing stuff for other people in that section of academia. And then it gets out of the real world. Like you need that kind of background in, you know, different forms of, of art practice or in economics or in the real world um, to make kind of important stuff. You know, I feel like um, doing things like portfolio reviews and seeing, and, you know, helping with admissions and stuff, you end up seeing people just like designing for designers and, you know, yeah. it's just kind of very pretty sketches, really beautiful renders. But then you start reading those, like those thick blocks of paragraphs that are like an eight point And you're just like, there's nothing here. There's, there's yeah. nothing here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, make like, yeah, having that different background, you're not uh, subject to kind of the smoke and mirrors as much, which I think is really helpful to get good work out there. Um, so I'm envious yeah. of that kind of. Yeah. I, me, I think like, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just feel like when you like doing the, undergrad in industrial design there's like this like technical emphasis on everything and then you're like stuck and being like no like the sketches have to be nice and no everything has to be nice because they Mm -hmm. told me and then you're spending so much time on that when you could be spending it you know making a good idea you know what kind of like the only thing that upsets me is that during the pandemic when i when we were all like at home i realized that maybe technical skills acquired during somebody's idea undergrad can really help like prototyping at home or just making things at home with just like foam or anything like that. Like I, Ayako Takase does that class uh, for the undergrad so where they like mm-hmm. make these prototypes, which look like real objects, but they're just like, wh- what is the thing they use? The uh, white urethane paste, foam? urethane foam. And then they put that pasty thingy like- on. Yeah, like spackle or whatever. Spackle yeah. and then sand it down and they look fucking be- incredible. Um, yeah, I can't do any of this shit. <laughs> Listen, like, but nor should, like, you don't have to. It's not going no, to be But yeah. the thing is, yeah. like, I want to make things, but there are no access to shops, right? So I'm like, uh, just might want to get some, like, foam and spackle, but, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little bit into your like thesis, right? You spoke about uh, jewelry. I kind of briefly went over your thesis a little bit and it starts off with your grandfather's ring uh, and then you go into heirlooms. And um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that because it's very interesting. You, you talk about how objects and um, heirlooms can be like, uh, um, kind of like more like curated after somebody's death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think like after doing a bit of reflection on the thesis, a lot of what, what its potential or what I feel like is valuable from it is um, kind of designing for people in retirement homes and designing for, you know, late stage living uh, for a very kind of objective view of it um, in the sense that like, uh, from the interviews that I did in retirement homes and from research, from secondary research, like there's so little made for them, which is now kind of changing. Thankfully, the pandemic has brought a lot of really cool, you know, um, inventions for reti- retirement homes and for death planning and for life planning. Uh, but 
at the time that I was doing all that thesis research, it was just very much kind of like all of these unsaid conversations and untapped potential for, you know, listening and hearing the opinions from the generations that come before us um, and trying to make something for that, you know, trying to, trying to build a platform where we don't lose all of these memories and where, yeah, the, the heirlooms, so to speak, get curated into what they're really about, which is all the stories that they contain. So it was just, you know, a bit of like a object transference program where it was just trying to get all of these memories that people have from objects or, you know, little minutia moments into somewhere where, you know, people can really cherish them and they can live for much longer. And um, yeah, to yeah. like, there's a line in in your thesis where you say that the millennials are kind of like rejecting heirlooms. And I really felt that because lately I've been kind of like mulling over. I, I write some notes on my computer about like the object and person relationship. So I'm like working on this idea where um, I, I feel like as a world, we we really have a bad relationship with objects. Like we've really abused that relationship. And and we continue to abuse it. Like the, I, I feel like it's sort of like a spectrum. And at two ends, you have at one end you have like the minimalists. And I don't mean like, you know, the hipster minimalists who have an all white house and a few pieces of furniture. I'm talking about like the sadhus in India who like leave home and leave society and kind of like are nomads um, or like the Buddhist monks. Right. They're like minimalists or the maximalists on the other end who are like uh, hoarders, essentially uh, labeled. Um, and yeah, so I, I want, I, so I'm, I'm thinking this actually moving from Providence to California and like at furnishing this house kind of made me think like, how many objects do I need to buy in order to like feel happy and content or, and not be burdened by, well, what if I have to move again and I've take all this stuff or, and so this is something that I'm thinking about. And like, I think it's a very pertinent problem right now with do I want more or do I want less or what's the balance, yeah. you know? Well, and that, you know, that, that point and that, that area of research was generally, you know, um, millennials own less land. The spaces they live in are much smaller, but you're still accumulating large, you know, halls of, of heirlooms when people pass, you know, mm -hmm. you have to sift yeah. through their entire kind of life of these, you know, sometimes useless objects. And so a bit of the thesis was trying to make sure that like, you know, providing activities and providing an outlet for people in retirement homes and for late stage life, but then also in a way trying to make them realize that, you know, these stories that are attached to objects per se can live in written form or can live in, you know, audio form. And the, these things may not necessarily need to be kept, you know, getting better with the idea of, I will leave these things, like they will be gone. Like they're not important to my legacy or memory. Um, because, you know, I was talking with a estate lawyer friend of mine recently, and he was like, yeah, we like recommend that you don't bring up 
heirlooms in court, like never talk about the fact that you want any of the things after they pass away, because it's going to be viewed as like materialistic and it's not going to help your case. And so, you know, it's this weird kind of taboo, but it's like, uh, we got to talk about it at least to, to make sure that we're not just emburdened or feeling massive guilt around getting rid of these things. Cause no one talked about it before they passed away. Yeah. Um, yeah. They can, you know, objects can create an incredible amount of guilt and sway, even if they're just like an Ikea plant. It's, it's yeah. kind of brutal. It's, it's so weird. Like it's one of the strongest relationships that we have is with inanimate things, you know, um, some people can be very attached to some things and sometimes those things are like passed on. So they have some emotional value. Um, but sometimes there's just like, I don't know, we kind of like associate feelings and emotions and memories to things. Um, which is like very interesting. Like for my thesis, I, for, uh, I interviewed, Thomas Twaits for um, a part where I was trying to like talk about what makes an object short term or lifetime or heirloom. And he had a very interesting take on it. Um, he said that an object kind of like exists with a surrounding complex. That's like the phrase he used. And the surrounding complex is like just the surrounding system that it exists in. So for example, a phone has a hardware, it has a software chip, it has a battery and all of those things. And for something like a phone or any IoT device, if one of those elements within the complex is out of date or is broken, it renders the whole kind of like system obsolete. And so those items are kind of refreshed every year. So we see like a new phone every year, TV, new fridge, um, and that kind of makes it kind of short term, but then objects that have a more simple surrounding complex, like a table or a lamp have the ability to be long-term or lifetime. Yeah. But then for the thesis, I was like dealing with also like plastic and water and all of those things. So like the question is that then a water, a plastic bottle has the most simplest like surrounding complex then why is it only used for like two hours, you know? And there's also that I could go on about a weird, our weird relationship with plastic as a material, but um, yeah. But what he said about heirloom is that when somebody say a, a parent or a grandparent passes away, um, we're often burdened with a whole bunch of stuff. And for most cases you wouldn't need like an extra set of dishes but Thomas Twaits said that maybe you'd keep one plate and that emotional durability was like a very interesting concept. And yeah. And like, I find that it's kind of interesting to go through that process of like cherry picking what that set of objects would be that would like encapsulate all my memories with that person. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very difficult, but I think it's very valuable because then you just get to, you get to see the 95% of the rest of what you own and you're like, oh, 
yeah, I wouldn't need to give all of this to someone when I pass away. Like this can be donated. This can go totally. somewhere where it's more useful. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in kind of relation to what Thomas is saying, I, I, I had like, this is going to be kind of word vomit, but it's like a, it's like a, it's like a jello stance. It's not crystallized yet, but I think it could be cool. Yeah. Um, so I think objects as signifiers should just be kind of changed to objects as uh, community ob- objects as community, because uh, I think how objects kind of work is that it's just like concentric rings of their value is tied to what level of community they bring me, right? It's like, if I use a plastic bottle, uh, almost everyone else on the planet has used a plastic bottle. I'm not part of any sub community or anything really that is gonna bring me a level of comfort um, through that. But when you start getting more and more precious or more and more kind of community building, you start to see objects have more value, right? Like, you know, the moment I own an Xbox, there's other people with Xboxes that now like I can be in a community with. Or if I own a car, I can be a car guy now. Like I can be part of car culture. You know, all of these objects have little subcultures which are just kind of free passes for community and for friendship. Like, you know, it's it's very difficult to organically make a friend now. That's a that's yeah. a difficult process. And so I think people realize that it's very easy to just circumvent that whole process by just buying something. It's like, well, you know, I could play board games and be a board game guy. And now I'll have friends in the area that play board games. And so I think, you know, the value gets greater as the community gets smaller, right? Or the perceived value gets greater as the community gets smaller. So, you know, if I buy a Rolex, now I'm just part of this small group of people that owns a Rolex. And if I see someone, then there's this like sense of community in a gross, weird way. And I think on an even smaller level, when you get to heirlooms, it's like, I am part of a community of people that have experienced this emotional trauma. Like it's just me and my sister or just me and my brother who are in this small group who have experienced this thing. So these objects are really valuable because they signify and they allow me to access this community in a way that nothing else can. So I think that that's kind of where they get their value is like such an incredibly unique community that they build. Um, so that's my take on objects. Yeah, I, I think I totally agree. And it's very interesting that, um, you know, when we think about war veterans or even society, even like groups like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, they've built this community around shared experiences or trauma. And like a group of people who own Ford Mustangs, like pre-70s Ford Mustangs, can circumvent all of that like experience or trauma, but even have and have like a similar strong bond within that circle of like Ford Mustang owners. It's like is the so, junk food version. Yeah, it's like the junk food version. Exactly. Yeah. It's like there's an alternative universe somewhere where people are actually forming groups um, with shared values and morals. Whereas right. in our in our like time in our universe, we're just like using uh, objects to do that. Yeah. It's so weird. It's very weird. I uh, 
Yeah, I don't blame them, though. It's obvious. I think it's, you know, not to get too conspiracy, but it feels kind of by design, right? It's like it's become more increasingly, you know, secluded in experience. So it's like, yeah, I have way less time in a day. I work two jobs. I'll circumvent this whole organically making a friendship thing by just owning an iPhone and seeing that another guy owns an iPhone and being like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Blue buddy. Bubble, I, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> I know how to make friends, Rohit. That's how you do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, not, not to sound too, like, undergrad social science but it is, like, keeping people from having conversations and keep, keeping people from developing ideas is profitable. It's profitable. The less you have to think is great yeah. because you can just listen to what I have to say and just like get that thing and make that thing happen. Yeah. Oh my God. I was talking to Matt about this yesterday. I think the sect of like modern people that I hate the most are these like Instagram entrepreneurs that are like for five you'll get my keys to success. Right. And then you click on it and it's just like, um, use Instagram if you're a photographer and it's like, no shit, bud. Oh, really? So, yeah. I hate that. Um, my, my, um, my version of that are like the health gurus. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're always like, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you've been told that running makes you lose fat. Wrong. Running <laughs> won't do anything. <laughs> you don't have to go to the gym anymore. Want to find out more? Click the download button or whatever. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um. Yeah, man. Like, I wonder, like, when it's a when now. It's not an if anymore. Like, when we start building colonies on when when we become like interplanetary species. Like, this is not even like conspiracy theory anymore. Like, Elon Musk is like totally so vocal about that like he's on the path to doing that um so when that does happen like i wonder how the object relationship is going to be because there's going to be this cost associated with bringing every kilogram on board in a space shuttle right now it costs like ten thousand dollars for a pound of weight to go into space so like it's all, it almost seems like we have to make everything on Mars itself. Yeah, right? Because we can't bring anything, clearly. I do not think it will affect our relationship with objects on Earth. But mm-hmm. I think the people that live on Mars will definitely have a different relationship with them. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh-huh. that's why I just kind of, yeah. Um. Yeah, I have no idea. You know, I think it, it it would be a general a generational thing, probably. This is me literally speaking out of my ass, but yeah, this um, is the, that time in the podcast. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so weird. interesting yeah, because it, I guess it's just a conversation of supply chain, right? It's just like if mm-hmm. we just get better at going back and forth between Mars mm-hmm. and Earth, then it would just be like a vacation spot for Earth. But, you know, it'd probably be a bit of like a pilgrim experience for the people that go there. And for the first few generations, it probably would be very 
you know, of the earth and probably, it, you know. I think so. Because the first few people who would go there are like super rich. Yes. And their object relationship is totally different. They have a lot of stuff, but they're, they're not really attached to anything, really. They've gone past that point. Like, I don't give a shit about stuff anymore. Kind of like, a, so maybe Mars would be kind of a welcome. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I feel like of the experience I've had with very wealthy people, which is not a lot, but some, it's a lot about keeping the space that they like with them everywhere. Right. It's like their first home is nice and it has a, a, you know, espresso maker. And the second home, it's got to have an espresso maker. I can't have that quality of life feature drop from my first place. Right. I'd like to have coffee on my plane. You know, like it's these, uh, the things that they tie to their identity have to be with them everywhere, Mm. which is kind of like, you know, just what convenience and cost will afford you. And so, you know, if it becomes, uh, you know, it kind of is going in that direction too. It's like all of these Mars missions are just, excuse me, funded by the richest people on the planet. So I imagine that, you know, if it's them being the first people there, they're just going to try and recreate the places that they like, but with, you know, a $90,000 bag of coffee. Yeah. Uh, So I don't know, that's maybe a bit cynical, but if that's the people going, that's what I would see happening. Which is just sad. Um, yeah. But also, it, you know, just like thinking about normal people being in Mars, it's such a desolate place and it's new. And all those stresses kind of like make you want the objects that you had. It's kind of like um, buying an object is sometimes like a stress response, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's commodified, obviously, in this economy as like, um, what do they call it? Uh, shopping therapy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Retail therapy. <laughs> Retail therapy. There. Um, I think us being kind of like prone to retail therapy and stuff in general. Um, I don't know. Mars just seems like it's weird. It's going to be weird and super weird. Well, you know, I hope that maybe because you hope that there'd almost be like some shock therapy of like, you know, the first bag of coffee runs out and then there's like, oh shit, it's going to be like five months until the next bag arrives. Like I've got to make do with what I have. So, you know, hope maybe there would be that kind of like a product of circumstance where they have to reevaluate once they get there. Like the hopes yeah. and dreams get shattered. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The most weirdest thought kind of came into me. Maybe they'll find a way to like filter out caffeine from your urine and then recycle it <laughs> back into you. So that's great. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's got super weird anyway. Um, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about something else. Let's talk about like genre hopping, right? I read somewhere that. 80 percent of I don't know if this is true or not, but like 80 percent of creatives face some kind of imposter syndrome. I know it's true for me, like coming from a very different background into industrial design. It's like 
there was a lot of moments where I felt like maybe like, do I even belong? Like every time uh, I had a bad crit or like some of my submission got turned down for an exhibition, I'm like, dude, there it is. Like, <laughs> I don't even belong here. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's brutal. I, um, I empathize completely. You know, I think it's also kind of having done the both degrees in industrial design, you're like, Oh, this pool is pretty deep. You're like, there's a lot to learn here. There's so much I don't know. And then having that experience, you look at like the graphic design pool and you're like, it's probably just as deep. And I'm like, I know Illustrator and that's like it. And so whenever you end up working on projects in those fields, I, I always end up having this like moment where I catch myself. I'm like, I know so little about this. Like, why am I the one doing this? Not from like, a, I don't want to be doing it, but just in kind of like a, there's got to be someone else out there that knows the rest of the pond. Um, and so it's constantly a, you know, kind of roller coaster of self-doubt I found. Um, you know, it's weird. It's hard to build confidence in, in fields that you feel like you're not a part of or that you shouldn't be a part of, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But I also think that it's kind of like a part of the creative process to kind of doubt yourself. I mean, there are like designers and creatives who don't doubt themselves at all, but not, I don't think necessarily they're like the best in the field, usually, like even the leaders kind of like doubt themselves and their work and it kind of helps them keep working on it and to better it eventually. Um, also lends to the fact that never is a project ever completed like if you pick it back up again it can take a different trajectory all over again um so yeah like um this is something like i want to talk to so i had i had a very good therapist um and she was a part of the like the RISD counseling um mm -hmm. body and um yeah she she said that she obviously she couldn't tell me a lot about what different clients were saying, but she kind of alluded to the fact that everybody is going through this, like this mm -hmm. self doubt and this like torture. Uh, and it, it, it is like, it's the tortured artist is like a thing. Right. Um, yeah. And when I was younger, <laughs> not even when I was younger, I still feel that sometimes uh, I was the most creative when there there was like shit happening in my life mm -hmm. and to a certain extent i would like self self sabotage relationships and events <laughs> to kind of like be able to like create and this was when i was like uh in a band we were making music and we were playing shows and everything and i was like yeah when there was shit happening in my life i was like writing great songs and um, making the best music and, and to, and yeah, this is something I like even talking about like mental health in the creative field. There's something I spoke to my therapist a lot about is, and she, she tried to tell me like, you don't have to self-sabotage yourself or feel like <sighs> that everything's going wrong in order to like create something or make something good. Mm -hmm. And she started giving me like exercises to kind of like 
live a healthy, normal life and also be able to create by like separating the two. I was like bringing my personal life into the creative. Right. And we all kind of do that. So, yeah. And it kind of affected uh, my relationships as well. So it's just not good. Yeah. It's definitely, um, God, it's so hard. I, uh, you know, it's so hard to not tie yourself to them because you take pride in them and because it's, you know, a large part of your identity, but it is so true that, you know, they're not, they're not extensions of yourself. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's also how it's also important to have confidence in kind of like your decision-making abilities outside of your little subsect. Like, you know, you should trust that you know enough about the creative process and about what you're working on because you've done your research and it doesn't matter if it's in graphic design or UX or whatever, you know, it's having that self-confidence is so hard, at least I found, but you know, it is so valuable. Um, Do you feel that way? Like going from ID to like goldsmithing and now you're almost like, you know, fresher in the field suddenly. Yeah. Um, for I definitely feel like for me, some of like the, it's definitely not the healthiest, but um, the more volume of creative stuff I'm doing, the the more confident I'll feel. Like if I'm sketching a lot and I'm working on actual projects out in real life and, you know, actually doing stuff for people rather than just like stewing in my own head and not coming up with anything, that like will do wonders for my mental health. Um, which is probably just kind of, you know, a bit of the um, curse of productivity. Um, So it's definitely always been tied to kind of volume, like the more I'm doing, the happier I'll be. Um, But, you know, for, for uh, going into goldsmithing, I think, I think the passion was really helpful, like really, really, it wasn't like, I'll do UX, I guess there's a lot of jobs. Um, you know, it's something that I really wanted to do. Like that was so night and day, just kind of, uh, you know, filing for like filing something for like five hours. is just like fun, you know, by all accounts, it's like an arduous process that is pretty boring, but because it leads to leads to more growth and the field that I want to be in, it becomes all the more, uh, fun. Um, but I think having, you know, done the UX work in the fall, for tetherport um and having a lot of those kind of conversations of self-doubt and you know talking with members on the team and and making decisions that i didn't feel like i should have been able to make um you know i feel like i was able to go into goldsmithing a little bit more like no yeah this is something new but still trust yourself and your creative process and and uh you know don't be too big for your boots make sure that you ask enough questions and don't assume that you can do enough um, and I feel like it's been a much healthier genre hopping experience, mm-hmm. um, by virtue of, you know, trusting myself, being able to ask questions, ask for help. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's about it, but, uh, being, you know, uh, the freshness in, in, in goldsmithing, I think is just, um, circumvented by the passion it's just like i'm okay to make some rings that fuck up or make some mirrors that fuck up because i really want to get better at this 
Um, so I think that that's kind of helpful. Do you mostly like work on rings or as of right now? Yeah. It's been rings and pendants mostly. I think that's just, you know, that's most of what the work comes in at Grimson's it's, um, you know, a ton of engagement in bridal jewelry and, um, some pendants, but, uh, um, yeah. So it's, it's more of like a, who wants what made rather than like what I really want to make. There's one more thing that like, you know, you just spoke about going from ID to UX to goldsmithing. And I was thinking like UX is such a field that I think anybody can get into UX, but not everybody can get into UX. UX is like such a strange feel, like it's still so new. You know, we figured out that, okay, maybe human-centered design background is important for like a UX designer and a psychology background is important for a UX researcher. But even like being a goldsmith, there's so much user experience that you have to figure out for a ring. And it's just like, it's just the material is different. Right. UX as a field, it's, it was always there. You know, it's not really that new. Uh, even like making stone tools, there's like, <laughs> that was their UX designers. Um, yeah. But yeah, but that's like taking this whole design market by storm. And now it's almost like whenever you open up job markets or it's just UX, Everywhere. nothing yeah. else at all. It's like nothing else is happening in the world. Yeah. Um, which is so depressing at the end of a pandemic yes. to like yeah, see that. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have too much to add on to that. I think, you know, for goldsmithing, it's nice because it is old. And so there's so many books and so much prior knowledge to build on where people will say like, you know, the setting needs to be this much bigger or the stone will jiggle or, you know, like they have all of these like set things because people have tried them over and over again, uh, which is kind of comforting when you're genre hopping, which is like, okay, there's a bit of stability stability here and a lot of um, things written down for me to kind of go to. Uh, because that, for me, weirdly enough, like going into different design fields, it's like... Are you familiar with the video game series Metroid? No. <laughs> Tell me Famous about it. Famous Nintendo game series. Okay. Playing intergalactic bounty hunter, badass lady. But the crux of every game is you start it with all of the power-ups. And then after like the first level, you lose all of them. And you have to get them all before the game ends again. And then you, you know, win the final battle with them. So it's like you get to experience yourself with all of this like power and fun ability and then you lose it all. And that's kind of what genre hopping in design feels like. It's like, okay, got a couple of degrees in industrial design. I'll work here. And then you're like, okay, well, there's a job in this other field. You jump over it and then you just, for some reason, lose all of your powers. Like, like I forget the whole design process. I forget all of my research abilities. I'm like, none of that applies here, but it all does. But yeah. for some reason, the brain is just so... Uh, tuned to factionalizing everything uh 
that I've yeah, had to really try to put that out. Dude, that's head. a great analogy. And a lot of it has to do with like labeling different fields. And yeah, you're like, wait, I'm a, I'm an industrialist, I'm not a graphic designer. But you've like graphic designed all your ID projects before and yeah. you worked out fine. Like, yeah. But obviously each field has its own kind of uh, nuances that you learn with experience. But Absolutely. going into it, you're never like a complete fresher uh, if you're already an established designer in another like yeah. subset of design. But like, telling yourself that is another yeah. thing. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, also like something that kind of, you know, knowing you, I know you have amazingly exciting dreams and you journal them, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, um, which is quite cool. And, um, it's kind of also related to your thesis in a way, like you also spoke about journaling in your thesis, right? Yeah. Um, does that like when did you start did you start journaling as a young age did you do that like for since forever uh never consistently i feel like i really like it as an activity but i've never been really able to build it as a habit um generally because of my ability to fall asleep quite quickly any like bedtime ritual that i try to build will just fall apart after a while because i'll fall asleep but I love journaling. Um, it's the part of my thesis that has lasted the longest. Um, right now, currently trying to build these journals for retirement home uh, residents, um, which is like, you know, in talks to be implemented in retirement homes in Canada. And, and it's the part that has lived the longest. And I think it's just, it's so accessible. It brings a lot of clarity. Um, and it's a way to really access stuff that's not going to be conscious generally. Like, you know, I'm rarely going to think about when I went to drum heller when I was six years old and what I saw there and what I felt. But, you know, the moment you're given like a little prompt that tells you to write about something like that, you know, that memory gets unlocked and then you write it down and someone can read it. So, so now it's uh, like, is it like an activity that they do at the retirement homes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. That's so cool. it's just like, it's uh, documenting their kind of personal histories and like little minutiae moments throughout their lives um, that they can then give to their families and they can read through. So, That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It should be exciting. Name to be decided, but All right. it's almost done. Um, can I read you some of my dreams from my dream journal? Absolutely. One but, of them, but you're in one. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but before that, tell me when you started writing down your dreams. My phone is telling me uh, 2018. Oh, so that's like three years of solid right. journaling. Yeah. yeah. What, what kind of led up to that? Like you woke up with a crazy dream. Yeah, basically. Basically. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. There's something so exciting about the kind of uh, again, kind of shared community of talking about dreams with people. Like they're just, they are so absurd and, um, they kind of highlight people's fears in an interesting way. Um, which not to sound kind of sociopathic there, but they, uh, (laughs) they're just like, uh, I don't know. They're fun conversations. It's a fun shared experience to have. 
And some of mine have just been so weird that I was like, I have to remember this. Like I can't forget yeah. this. Um, yeah. So three years let's, ago. Let's do it. Take us through one of your dreams. All right. So this, like many of my dreams, is in a town that doesn't exist. It's just like buildings from other places I've been all kind of stacked together. Love it. And like many of my dreams, the buildings kind of have a bit of a quantum feel to them. Like they look like a four-story building and then you walk in the door and they're like 20 stories tall. So it was you and it was Kyunga and I, and we went to this uh, like airplane shop slash okay. museum. All right. So it was okay. it was just a bunch of like airplanes on exhibit, like old propeller planes and planes that didn't exist and like flying saucers and stuff. And we were just like <laughs> walking through this like gallery and uh, and then you could you could like test drive them like you could fly them. And there was like just like this little waiting room where you could like watch your friends like fly flying saucers and stuff. And um, you flew you flew this old prop plane. Kyungha flew a flying saucer. And then I can't even dive written down. I don't. But I, I flew one and I crashed and then I woke up when I I woke up when I crashed. Whoa. Was like, that that was an intense end. <laughs> I yeah. wasn't expecting that. That's crazy. Wait, but just just to like add, if this yes. was real, I would pick the propeller over the, yes. the saucer. Yeah. Oh I knew it. I'm a propeller person. Definitely. Can I read you one that is insane? Yeah. But what did yeah. you think? Of, did you like make any assumptions after the end of that dream? That was kind of like. I, a lot of my. Okay. This is kind of sad, but a lot of my dreams end in my own failure. <laughs> I right. have okay. so many stress dreams where like I get a job somewhere cool. This was like a lot of these happened before I was employed. Like like mid holiday season when I was like struggling with my <laughs> right. own unemployment and I was yeah, just like yeah, oh my god and uh, I would like get a cool new job somewhere I would sit down at my desk and then I would completely forget how to do everything and they'd be like come on man draw something and I'd be like I can't <laughs> like I don't know how there's um, a house and a tree and yeah. a cloud <laughs> I drew a sun in the margin yeah some v, uh, v-shaped birds um yep. no i i i feel like there's like strong connection to that particular dream because you k and i would regularly go get coffee yeah um so de- maybe definitely that kind of tied into that kind of grouping yeah man, absolutely i have a lot i feel like i generally have a decent amount of dreams with providence friends because a lot of that was cut so short uh and I think it's my brain trying to like reconcile like, oh yeah, you know, those friendships exist. They're yeah. off somewhere, but uh, they're valuable. Um, so I think that that's where that kind of comes in. Um, yeah. All right. Let's go to the crazy one. Yeah. All right. You ready? It's so segmented and it makes no sense. <laughs> Amazing. My uncle Kenny is having a wedding with his second wife. He's not remarrying. It's just a random new lady. Okay. But demons are sabotaging it. <laughs> I'm stuck in a time loop, so I can't help. Meanwhile, I'm taking a class about dogs, and I'm doing a project on dark chocolate. My teacher 
has a hidden set of eyes underneath the bandana. End. Dude. Uh, Wow. That was so poetic. It's almost like a dadaist dadaist poem. Um, But yeah, no. Dude, you should fucking collect these gems and like publish a book on it i i would love to read that it's so crazy little doodles for them that'd be fun what did he even make of this dream i have no idea i have no idea um do you want to do like a dark chocolate class or something (laughs) workshop you know i like i like dogs i think of talking about adverse health effects for them is important. Mm-hmm. I have no wish for my uncle to get remarried. He's with an awesome lady right now. I don't know. I do definitely have a, a number of dreams where there's an element of futility or like I can't solve a problem. I think that's often dealing with kind of like self-doubt and worry is, is through these dreams of like, I can't, I just can't save him from the demons sabotaging his wedding. Um, which I think is maybe just tied to my anxiety or something. Just these ideas of like, oh my God, I'm going to fail. So that's like a thread. Yeah. Dude, it's like most of the times when I, I don't dream regularly, but when I do, they're awfully normal. Every other dream would could be like, every once in a while, there'd be a crazy dream. But Sirith, my girlfriend, she dreams more often <clears throat> and her dreams are like crazy intense or like inexplicable and like in this fantasy land or like it's fucking nuts. Um, but I wonder like why some people dream in this kind of an intense way. Some people just don't dream, you know? Um, um. Isn't the the leading theory kind of is that it's your it's your brain unpacking subconscious thoughts that you weren't able to deal with through the day. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're just a very Zen guy who his dreams are just normal, and you you go to therapy, yeah, and you you go. I I out. dreamt of like walking into class and then doing class and going back home. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Maybe I miss activity. You know, I miss. <laughs> Maybe my life's yeah. so fucked up. I miss normalcy. I miss normal. <laughs> so I dream Maybe. of normal lives. Maybe your Maybe. life is quite normal and balanced. So you dream of the crazy. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. That's very funny. I definitely have had dreams where I repeated a day and then woken up and been like, wait, I have to do it again? <laughs> wow. No. Um, How's Canada treating you? Are you happy to be back home? Yeah. Yeah, really happy. Um, I really like Vancouver. It's definitely uh, um, very sunny, outdoorsy, nice place to be during the pandemic. Um, Fall is super rainy, which if you're already dealing with kind of depressive episodes, not a great combo, but Mm -hmm. it's like very up and down. But um, Uh, no, it's been, it's been very nice. It's, I, I, you know, I'm very fortunate and privileged to say that, you know, the pandemic has been 
pretty smooth sailing. Like we haven't gotten sick. We haven't really had to deal with too much financial risk or anything. So it's been like fairly smooth sailing and pretty happy times. Yeah. It's awesome, man. Um, I want to thank you again for like doing this. Um, we don't have like a wrap up segment yet. <laughs> I want to do like uh, audience questions or something. I have this idea of uh, crit my shit segment where people uh-huh. <laughs> send in their like half baked ideas or whatever. And we kind of like go through them and talk about them or whatever, but that's like in the future. I hope you'll okay. come, come back and we can do yeah, the crit my shit segment. But anyway, um, thank you everybody for listening and thank you, Jake, once again, and, uh, I'll see you next week.